Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decomp smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the Coffee Talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with a Criminalist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Coffee with a Criminalist. Today, we're going to be talking about our favorite alcohol, if we could be drinking it, but we're at work, so obviously we're not. We are not. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about our favorite alcohol instead of our favorite coffee from a coffee shop, because today we're discussing DUIs. Yes, indeed. So my favorite alcohol is actually tequila and my favorite drink of all time. <laughs> um, I have two. It's tequila and ouzo are my two favorites. And then I usually will order what I call a poor man's margarita and I just do lemonade and tequila. Or I like what's called Napalo and it's ginger beer with um, ouzo. It's a little black licorice, a little tart, a little lemon juice in there. So good. I was going to say, for people who don't know what ouzo is, it's like a Greek liqueur, right? Yeah, and it's um, a lot like, it tastes like black licorice. I love black licorice. So you just need a little bit. We call it like a, an ouzo float on the top because it's really strong. Um, my favorite is, hands down, whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone that knows me knows that. Um, but my favorite beverage is an old-fashioned, but anything with whiskey in it really. I'm a I love big it. Fan. You're like a little old man with your. I am. It's my soul. <laughs> little old man. What's your favorite bar in town? Um, my favorite bar would probably, which is ironic, um, Tentor because they don't have a whiskey currently. I oh. think they're coming out with one soon. Okay. Or they just came out with one, but they haven't had one in the past. But it's one of my favorite bars. But they don't have whiskey. Hmm. Um, but their cocktails are always changing, and they're always just like really, really good. So. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy the Eddie. I think the Eddie's fun, especially in the summer when they have, you know, all the games going. They do, I do a lot of yoga in my off time, like you guys have heard me talk about before. And they will do yoga in the weekends on the mornings, which I think is kind of fun. And their food, they have the pizza in there. I really like the Eddie. People can bring their dogs if they're friendly. It's just a cool, chill place. They have fun games, too. Yeah, for sure. Well, when we're talking about DUIs, Oftentimes, when I talk to people on the public, they don't realize that DUI has a lot to do with forensic science. We actually have multiple sections down in the lab uh, that are dedicated to dealing with DUIs, notably breath alcohol and toxicology. And toxicology because they perform the blood alcohol testing when people refuse to give a breath sample. And Nevada is no stranger to DUIs because, you know, most people think when they think of Nevada... Sin City, Sin City, Las Vegas. Absolutely. You know, so um, we definitely have our fair share of DUIs, but they're, so they're, you know, pretty common. I found interesting reading an article um, that based on the study that was done, Nevada ranked, I think, number 12 mm-hmm. in the nation on booziest brunchers. Very boozy brunchers, um, listeners. What are you doing out there? Because um, it was like um, crashes, I think it was fatal crashes that happened between like 9 and 3 p.m., which oh, are wow. like brunch hours. Okay. Um, I know I'm I'm a bruncher. I love to brunch, but who doesn't love a good brunch? Just don't drink and drive. Absolutely. Um, talking about DUIs in the state of Nevada, when you look at Nevada, 
there are 315.9 per 100,000 people in the United States uh, that actually get a DUI in the state of Nevada. And when you compare that nationally, interestingly enough, we found that Nevada ranked kind of middle of the pack. The top three states for DUIs are South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming. And interestingly, the um, lowest uh, rate of DUI was Washington, D.C. I kind of thought like Capitol Hill, they'd be really stressed out. Maybe they'd have more, (laughs) but apparently they have less. And uh, when we look at fatalities, unfortunately, in the state of Nevada in 2019, um, there were 284 fatal crashes due to DUI. And when you compare that to the nation in 2018, um, the entire nation as a whole had 10,511. So we are right there in the middle of the pack when it comes to fatalities due to DUIs. And DUIs are actually the most common type of tests that we see or like submission that we see in Mm -hmm. our laboratory, which most people don't think of when you think of like forensics being you know, they immediately go to like DNA or firearms and stuff like that. But it's actually the most submitted type of testing to Requested, our laboratory. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so for as common as it is, you know, most people don't know a lot about what happens when you get a DUI and how forensics is involved with that process. Absolutely. And one of the other things to consider is um, DUIs can actually be given out for a lot of substances and not just alcohol. But we have incorporated this episode to really focus on alcohol um, as we feel that it's probably one of the more common um, ones that we get for sure. And so we broke this episode into two parts for you guys. Um, we'll be hearing from a patrol deputy from our agency to talk about field sobriety testing and um, what goes on after you've been arrested for a DUI. And then we'll be hearing from a representative from our breath alcohol section to talk about the testing of those breath samples. And first up, we have Deputy Hammond. Well, hi, Deputy Hammond. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. Um, Why don't you tell our listeners where you're from? Uh, I'm originally from Oregon. I came down here back in 2006 to go to the University of Nevada to play basketball and throw the javelin on the track team. Wow, okay. And how long have you been in law enforcement or on patrol? Um, I've worked at the sheriff's office for, it'll be eight years in July, and I've been on on patrol for about three and a half of those. Okay. And what made you want to be in law enforcement? It was one of those things that I wanted to do when I was younger. Um, And then, you know, growing up, going to college, I kind of got into a different career path. But um, once I got out of college and started looking for jobs, that really wasn't panning out. And I decided to go back to what I wanted to do when I was younger and kind of live out my dream. Since we were talking about DUIs in this episode, can you explain to our listeners the signs that you look for when someone is drunk driving? Yeah, um, if I were patrolling and specifically, or I guess if I were driving and happened to see someone, um, the the main things that would catch my eye are uh, swerving in the lane, crossing over into other lanes, um, speeding up, slowing down, um, driving without their headlights on, that's a big one. Um, Yeah, those are probably the main, main things that would catch my eye. Okay. And then once you pull someone over, do you continue to look for signs or does it just stop on, you know, when they're driving? No, it continues. Um, so uh, once I go up and make contact with the driver, um, I can, you know, ask him some questions. You know, where are you coming from? Have you been drinking? Um, and then looking for certain things like do they have red watery eyes? Are there, is their um, speech slurred? Um, you know, did, can I, am I able to smell any type of like alcoholic beverages or marijuana or anything like that? 
And then um, do you ever have somebody, like, try to – do you ask for stuff and then they give you the wrong thing ever? Like, is that a sign? Like, like hey, give me your driver's license and they give you a credit card? <laughs> is that yes, everything? That, that does happen quite a few times or, you know, they'll go into their wallet to pull out their ID and they'll just kind of stare at it for a while and super slowly go through it and then, you know, pick out their credit card and try and hand you that. And you're like, no – I mean, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do some online shopping now, uh, but I am just asking for your ID. And then they're like, oh, oh, okay. And then, you know, eventually, you know, sometimes you have to point it out to them. Okay. Or sometimes they'll just I'll be like, can I get it out of your wallet for you? And they'll be like, yes, here, take it. <laughs> um, and can you explain a little bit about uh, the field sobriety testing that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first thing we'll do is we'll, we'll uh, ask them to step out of the car and um, – that too is something or something that we'll watch while they're doing that is how are they getting out of their car? Are they stumbling? Are they able to walk back? Because we have them walk back towards our patrol car where we'll, where we'll administer the tests. Um, you know, how are they walking? Are they stumbling? Are they falling over? Um, are we even going to be able to do the test because they can't get out of the car? Like, do we need to call medical for them? <laughs> Does that happen? Uh, occasionally, yeah. Okay. There's There's been a couple times where they've just been so intoxicated where we call medical to come check them out, and then we're just not able to do the test because they can't stand. Okay. Um, the fir first thing that we go through, even before we get really into, like, the actual testing, is we'll go through, like, a really quick, um, I don't really want to call it, like, a medical questionnaire, but just some, some basic questions to make sure that they don't have any conditions that might mimic you know, certain signs and symptoms of intoxication, like if they've ha recently had a concussion or, and that could cause, you know, one of their pupils to be a different size or it could cause some different things with their eyes. Um, so we'll go through that. Um, and then the first, the first thing that we do is called the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, which is probably, um, I guess, the best indicator of um, intoxication, especially with alcohol. Um, so we'll look for a couple things with that. You know, is there equal tracking in their eyes, equal pupil size? Um, so when someone's intoxicated, um, they'll have a, a, a natural, I guess, kind of like bumping with their pupils. They'll kind of bounce back and forth. Um, and usually the higher the intoxication level, the more the, their eyes will do that. Um, so a couple of the things that we'll look for is, is equal tracking, you know, their pupils the same size, uh, when their eyes are going back and forth, you know, are they is the are they tracking smoothly? Um, and then we'll have um, we'll hold our finger out and have them look at it and um, hold it out to the side for at least four seconds and see if their pupils are bouncing back and forth. And then when some people are are highly intoxicated, they'll actually have vertical nystagmus, which is uh, when we'll have them look at our finger and then we'll go like above their forehead and. Um, you can actually see the bouncing in their eyes uh, when they look up. Hmm. So that is a pretty good indication that they're well above um, the legal uh, driving limit. Um, one of the, the next tests that we do uh, is called the walk and turn test, which is probably the most well-known test. Or From Reno 911? Yes, the step <laughs> bump, step bump, bump. Yes. Quick little funny story. The first time I saw that, I thought that was a real... I thought that was real dash cam footage. <laughs> like, for, obviously, when it got you know more ridiculous towards the end, I was like, okay, this is a skit. Yes. But at first, I was like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> um, so we'll do the walk and turn. Um, Probably not as cool as Reno 911. Yeah, yeah. Is it just a turn? Is that what you guys have them do? Like walk down and then turn? Yeah. So we'll have them take a couple steps, and then we make observations about how they're how they're walking. Like, are they touching heel to toe? 
you know, are they stepping off balance? Um, do, they, do they have to stop walking? Are they raising their arms? And then you will have them take nine steps and sometimes they'll, they'll like forget to turn. So they just keep walking and then we'll oh. be like, oh, okay, you know, you have to come back now. And then um, how they do their turn is a good indication of intoxication. And then sometimes on the way back, they forget again to stop and we have to tell them to stop. So um, the, the next test that we do is the one, the one leg stand where they can pick whichever leg they want to stand on and then we'll have them hold the other one up um, for about 30 seconds. And then some things that we're looking for with that, like is, are they swaying? Are they using their arms to balance? Are they having to put their foot down? Are they hopping? Um, and then we'll also, um, we'll have them them count um, out loud and some we'll see what number they get to. Like we'll, you know, have a watch and count for 30 seconds. And then usually when they're intoxicated, they'll uh, not quite get to 30 seconds. So they'll be like 1,022. And then we're like, okay, stop, that's 30 seconds. Um, if, if there's an indication that there's drugs or marijuana, there's a couple other tests that we can do. Um, one of those being the lack of convergence, which I think that one's pretty cool because if it doesn't happen all the time, but if somebody's um, fairly high, um, when we bring our fingers closer to their nose, you know, your eyes would naturally want to cross to watch your finger as it gets closer and one of their eyes will like bounce back out. Oh, I didn't so it's kind of a, yeah. It's kind of a neat thing to see, and you're you're kind of like, oh god, yeah. <laughs> it catches you off guard. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever ask people to recite the alphabet? This may be a misconception I have when in some cop shows. And Malcolm <laughs> in the Middle. Did yes. you ever see that episode? Where they like ask you to recite the alphabet <laughs> backwards, and then they ask you to do it backwards. Yes. And I was like, who could do that? Yeah, I don't know. I've never asked anybody that. And it's not part. <laughs> okay. any of, it's not part of <laughs> any of our tests, but I mean, that would be tough to do. I was sober. Be, I, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. like, that was just mean. Yeah. yeah, I would get to Z and be like Z, Z and uh, I don't know. Can I write it down. <laughs> and actually, I was wondering, do you ever have somebody who maybe isn't intoxicated but is just very nervous? And so, like, I just I know, like, when I took my voice stress analysis test for the job, mm-hmm. they asked me to lie, and I like almost couldn't because I was just so nervous being mm-hmm. in in that environment. So, do you ever have people that you tell them to like walk nine steps, and they just like they're so nervous they forget, or is that usually not a problem? Um, there are people who get nervous, and that's kind of understandable. I mean, you're out on the side of the road with, uh, you know, an officer telling you to, you know, do, do certain tests. But um, the nervousness and intoxication, it'll the signs. I don't. The signs are sim- like they're, they're different. Okay. So you you can tell like when somebody's nervous, and, you know, they're kind of shaking or they're, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing something like a little bit wrong. But like, when they're intoxicated, it's definitely um, much more obvious. And we always give them the benefit of the doubt. So like. For me, if they're close on something, I give it to them. Gotcha. Um, So it's usually fairly obvious. Have you ever given a DUI to someone who wasn't driving a car? And I ask this question specifically because (laughs) I always think of Burning Man um, and like pirate ships out on the playa. And I'm like, oh, I bet you like somebody may have driven something crazy (laughs) or a golf cart, cart (laughs) scooters. I don't know. (laughs) So I have not. um, I do know a couple of uh, my partners have arrested people on on uh, on scooters. And actually, one of the girls I used to play basketball with years ago, uh, she got arrested. Um, she didn't go to school here at UNR or anything, um, but she got arrested for driving a golf cart drunk on campus. So yes, it can. It doesn't have to be um, a car or a truck. It's basically like any motor vehicle. So anything that has a motor. And if you're on any type of public road or public street or any road that basically has public access, you can you can get um, get arrested for a DUI. 
So can you get a DUI, like, you said motorized vehicle, but can you get in trouble for, like, operating a bicycle while drunk? So I think that would kind of fall into more of, like, a public intoxication thing. But, yeah, you wouldn't get a DUI. I mean, but now they do have those bikes, though, that have motors. Right. So if you're... Yeah. Yeah. Like those line bikes? That would be Mm -hmm. tricky because, you know, you can either, you know, power it yourself or use the motor. So, I don't know. That would be kind of tricky. Okay. Yeah. Now that you have determined that someone is likely intoxicated, what's the process like when you take someone to jail? Um, So we'll um, place them under arrest. We'll put them in the back of our car. And then we have to read them um, our implied consent, um, which basically says, you know, we have reasonable grounds to believe that you were driving a motor vehicle um, and under the influence of alcohol or controlled substance or marijuana. Um, and then we ask them if they'll submit to evidentiary testing. Um, and for that, um, you can either do a breath or a blood sample. Um, and actually, refusing to submit to evidentiary testing, um, the DMV will revoke their driver's license for um, oh, a minimum of one year. So, okay. So yeah. I used to always think, we have talked about this before, um, when I first started working here, I had a supervisor that worked in breath alcohol and I had lots of questions for her. So mm-hmm. I always just assumed if somebody refused that they just waited and got a warrant. But on top of that, like you guys have to get the warrant and then they're going to, do you tell them that they're going to get their driver's license revoked? Yeah. So okay. our implied consent, um, we read it verbatim every time. And there's a little section there that says refusing to submit um, will um, result in a immediate revocation of their driver's license. Um, but if they still refuse, because I mean, I can't force them to, you know, give a blood or a breath. Um, what we do from there is uh, we would submit a warrant to a judge, okay. and then if the judge grants it, then we would go ahead and, and um, use, you know, reasonable force to, to get a blood sample from them. Gotcha. And how long do people typically spend, like, in jail for a DUI, like, that night after once you get them there? Uh, it can depend. Um, it would depend somewhat on their intoxication level and then also what their criminal history is. Um, we can't, and I don't know if I'll get this, ex- it's been a couple years since um, I've worked in the jail, but um, we can't release somebody who's still like intoxicated. So they, I, b- I believe it's still, they have to blow on a PBT, a preliminary breath test, they have to blow below a .04 before they can get released. Okay. Um, and then... Is if they do that and don't really have much of a criminal history, then they'll probably get a court services uh, release. Um, so it can be anywhere, and it really depends on how busy it is that night too. The more busy, the longer they're going to be in there. But it can be anywhere from a couple hours to you know twelve hours sometimes, okay, or longer. <laughs> and is there a time of year or holidays or weekends that you see like a really big spike in DUIs? Yeah. So any of the big um, drinking holidays, especially. So like Independence Day, um, well, I guess, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, but then also like the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. St. Patrick's uh, Day? St. Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. yes. Um, I was just curious if the crawls, because like Reno has a little oh, bit yeah, unique crawls. in that mm-hmm. sense that we have those crawls downtown, like the pub crawls and stuff, if you see like a massive increase in DUIs then, or if people are pretty responsible with ride-sharing apps. Um, I mean, nowadays, I'd it still kind of blows my mind how many people get arrested for DUIs with the number of options there are. I mean, everybody has a smartphone for the most part. Um, 
with like all the different ride shares i mean mm-hmm. it, it's so easy and it's really not that expensive like right. you can go you know from one end of the city to the other for i mean at the most like 30 bucks which is way cheaper than getting a dui <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and do you so. ever see people i think this was more like in college like when my friends and uh, and i would go out people would say oh we're gonna you're gonna sleep it off you'll be fine in the morning or whatever but do you ever see people that have thought that they have slept off their alcohol and are maybe like on their way to work and get duis yes so if you're doing partying pretty hard and drinking a lot and then you go to sleep i mean your body still needs time to process all that alcohol so just because you went to sleep for a few hours and you wake up and you may even feel like you're completely sober, but that alcohol could still be in your bloodstream. So definitely take that into account and mm-hmm. either wait longer or get some get a ride from mm-hmm. someone. And can you explain uh, to our listeners when a DUI can become a felony versus a misdemeanor? Yeah, so there's um, a couple ways that that can happen. The first being if someone were to get three DUIs within seven years, uh, once you get that third um, conviction, that one's going to be a felony. And then after that, it doesn't matter how much time goes by, um, every DUI after that will be a felony. Um, there's some other things that can come into play, like did they get into an accident? Did they hurt somebody? Did they um, kill somebody? Um, those things can also bump it up to a felony. And have, have things changed for you in any way when it comes to DUI testing because of COVID? Yes. Uh, So right now, because of all the precautions with COVID, uh, we're not doing breath, uh, evidentiary breath samples. Um, So we're just doing blood right now. I think now that we're kind of coming towards the end of all the COVID stuff, hopefully um, we'll be able to get back to doing breath samples uh, for evidentiary testing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, Part of our podcast is also not to just talk about like our jobs in law enforcement and forensics. It's also to talk about like the person behind the badge. So um, we just wanted to kind of get to know you a little bit. Like we're friends outside of work, so Mm -hmm. I know things about you. (laughs) But why don't you tell our listeners? All good things. Yeah, all good things. (laughs) Um, A little bit about you. Like what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? Oh my gosh. Especially now that it's starting to get warm. I love to be outside. Um, I love being at the beach with my buddies and camping and pretty much anything in the water. I'm, I'm considering buying a jet ski this year. I think I might wait until maybe like the fall and maybe we'll go on sale and then I can yeah. get a good one for get next year. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but pretty much anything outside. Okay. Well, uh, Deputy Hammond, you have reached our lightning round and these are three questions that are off the cuff. We're trying to just, you know, catch you with some hot questions here. We'll see how you do. Okay. (laughs) Uh, The first question is, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing law enforcement today? Uh, I think there's just a lot of miscommunication out there. Um, uh, I recently had one, one of my friends reach out and ask me a couple questions about some things going on in the country and I really appreciated it because there are some people who um, you know don't do their research so they'll just hear something from someone and you know think it's true and then spread whatever they were saying and she reached out and she was like hey like you know this happened what you know what's your opinion like on on this and whatnot and so I would tell her and and she was really appreciative of me being open and I think that's something that we all can be a lot better at is just you know, sharing information and, you know, asking questions and, mm-hmm. you know, just just being open and communicative with, with everyone. Absolutely. And has this job changed anything outside of work for you? 
Yes. Um, so I've noticed now that I, I pay attention to a lot more things. Um, like, especially if I'm in a big crowd, I'll like look around and, and see if I can find like, you know, where's, where's the nearest exit? If I can't get to the exit, which way do I need to go? Okay. All of the people are probably going to go this way. Do I need to go this way? Um, and then I also, <laughs> I now I look in the crowd. I'm like, okay, who do I think could help me if something were to happen? <laughs> um, so I'm definitely like more aware and pay attention, uh, pay attention more. And do you take your work home with you? Um, I try not to. Um, I use my drive home from work as like a decompressing um, time. So I'll, you know, blast my music or if it was a really hard, and you know it's a really bad day when you just sit in silence on your drive yes. home. <laughs> I have had that <laughs> many times. You in your car. Yes, yes. So don't like go a, in. Yes, you, yep, You're I've done like, that quite okay. a few times. <laughs> But I try not to, and I have a really supportive family and friends, so sometimes I just call them and just vent and let it all out. Uh, but I don't check my email at home. I try to leave all that stuff for when I'm at work. It's just, you know, if I need to come in for overtime or if something happens, somebody will get a hold of me. I don't need to be on my phone checking my email or, you know, checking all this stuff. So I, I try not to, but unfortunately it does sometimes. Yeah. Now our last and final question. What makes you smile every day at work? <laughs> uh, my partners that I work with, for sure. Um, they are all hilarious, and we laugh about everything. Without them, it would definitely be a very, a very dark job. Um, so I'm very appreciative of them. Um, I don't think there's ever been a day I've gone to work and not laughed about something because of one of them. So... Well, Deputy Hammond, we just really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and being a part of this. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And now we'll be hearing from criminalist David Astles. All right, well, we'd like to welcome David. He's here to talk to us today about the breath alcohol section. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, why don't you explain to our listeners what you do in breath alcohol? Well, the breath alcohol program is a little bit different from most, if not all, the other sections in the lab in that we don't deal directly with evidence itself. What we do is we support the law enforcement community in, the, in impaired driving enforcement by calibrating and maintaining evidentiary breath testing equipment for drunk driving cases. What kind of education and training do you need to do your job? The breath alcohol program has some specific requirements above and beyond the requirements to be a criminalist in, in the Forensic Science Division. And that stems from the fact that we are required to be certified by the State Department of Public Safety. So in addition to the basic requirement of a science degree, we require a degree with a minimum of 24 credit hours of chemistry. So generally speaking, that means a bachelor's degree in chemistry. Mm -hmm. And David, I think a lot of people know, or at least um, aware of the fact that when you see like a roadside PB test, PBT test being done, that's actually not the evidentiary test that's used in the court of law in their case. Can you explain to our listeners why that is? Yes. Yeah, so the roadside testing f with the little handheld devices is a tool that officers can use in their investigation, but the results from that test are not admissible in court. And there's two main reasons for that. The technology that's used in the handheld devices is 
actually used in some evidentiary devices. It's just that the environment in which the testing is conducted at the roadside, where it may be hot, it may be cold, you can't necessarily control the subject as well as you can in a more evidentiary environment, that impacts or can impact the testing. And so that's one of the reasons why it's not permissible. The other reason is that there are very specific testing protocols for a test to be admissible in evidence. And those protocols and all the steps that are required are not readily administered at the roadside. So the evidentiary devices that we use have most of those steps programmed into the device itself. And they're conducted in a more controlled environment. So we can be sure that the tests are as accurate and reliable as they can be. What do the intoxilizer and the PBTs, what are they actually measuring? So the both devices, whether it's used in a, as a preliminary device in the field or as an evidentiary device in, um, in a, a jail, for example, or a police station, they're measuring alcohol that is being exhaled from the subject's body that has been inside their body. I think there's a misconception that it's measuring alcohol that's left over from having uh, swallowed it, having had it in your mouth. But in fact, it's one of the mechanisms your body uses to eliminate alcohol is through exhalation. It's a minor means of elimination, but it's consistent. So the alcohol that you exhale contain, excuse me, the breath that you exhale contains alcohol in proportion to the amount of alcohol in your blood. And that's what we measure and that's why it can be used as an indication of uh, ultimately impairment. I will say that was one of the first things I learned when I started working here. I didn't know how they worked. I thought it was just fascinating that it's, you know, the alcohol coming out of the lungs when you're breathing. I thought it was really cool. Um, I think a lot of people are pretty comfortable or knowledgeable that a legal limit for at least the state of Nevada is a .08. I don't really know that a lot of people know what that means. So what does this .08 mean? The .08 number means something very specific in Nevada, and it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from state to state. So in Nevada, the uh, driving under the influence statute has a number of different components that can be uh, that can be charged. One is on impairment, and a, an impairment charge does not require a specific amount of alcohol. It's more a question of demonstration of a subject's inability to safely operate a motor vehicle. But the .08 level in Nevada is what's called an illegal per se limit. What that means is if your blood or breath alcohol level is measured and you're found to be above a .08, you're guilty of an offense regardless of whether there's any demonstrated impairment or not. It's simply a fact that, or, or the, the simple fact that you have an alcohol level above that number, 0.08, is an offense in and of itself. 
Are there factors that influence a person's breath alcohol level? Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, the breath alcohol level is proportionate to the blood alcohol level. And obviously, it's alcohol in the blood inside the body that is what's causing impairment. So the blood alcohol level is influenced, of course, in large part by the amount of alcohol that one drinks. Mm -hmm. The more you drink, the higher your blood or breath alcohol level is going to get. But specifically, it depends on, on a few additional things. Number one is going to be the size of the person. Alcohol that you consume is distributed into your, in your body in essentially all of the tissues that contain water, which is most of your body. So a larger person is going to have more water in their body. So the alcohol that they consume is distributed through that larger volume of water. So if you had a large person and a small person drinking the same amount of alcohol, the smaller person is going to have the higher concentration mm -hmm. because they have less body water that's uh, distributing that alcohol. The other factor that influences it beyond body size is body composition. And that's because fatty tissue has much less water in it than muscular tissue. So if you had two people of roughly the same size and weight, one of whom was very muscular and the other person, uh, the other of whom was, was flabbier, the, the person with the higher body fat content is going to have a higher concentration from the same amount of alcohol because they have less body water than the more muscular person. And that's also one of, the, one of the factors, one of the differences between men and women. If you have a man and woman of the same size, typically for anatomical reasons, women have a higher body fat uh, composition mm -hmm. on that uh, uh, in general. Obviously, there are huge variations between yeah. individuals, but, but the anatomical differences between men and women also contribute to differences in blood alcohol concentration. And those differences in blood alcohol concentration lead to differences in breath alcohol concentration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked a lot so, uh, so far on the podcast about how we do a lot of community outreach and how we work with other agencies and even educating um, law enforcement. And you guys do a lot of that. And one of the things that I thought was quite fun to learn about when I started working here was what's called wet lab. Will you tell our listeners what a wet lab is? Yeah, so a wet lab is a training tool that's used uh, to train new officers in how to conduct standardized field sobriety tests. So people have probably seen either video or perhaps in person an officer at a roadside getting somebody to stand maybe with one leg raised or walk on a straight line, or maybe the officer has their finger in front of the subject's face and they're moving their finger back and forth. Those are standardized field sobriety tests that have been scientifically validated to give clues if the subject is above uh, a 0.08 uh, alcohol level. But the officers have to learn how to recognize those clues and perform the tests in the validated standardized way. So a wet lab is where we get um, 
or, or where there are a, a number of volunteer drinkers who come in and they're given measured doses of alcohol designed to get them to a target alcohol level and then they go into the facility where the officers are the, the trainees are going to conduct the tests and they follow the instructions of the officers who are conducting the field sobriety tests and then the officers have to determine you know what clues are there how many etc under the uh, supervision of an instructor and then of course they're, they're they're scored or graded and and they have to pass they have to qualify to perform those field sobriety tests and so they're doing it on actual drinkers who are who are consuming controlled amounts of alcohol what a thing to volunteer for <laughs> so um they go and all the officers are being trained to recognize these um, signs of impairment but how does alcohol affect your actual driving skills so alcohol is what's known as a neurological depressant. It works on one of your body's natural neurotransmitter systems. And that system is, is uh, a normal part of your body's nerve functioning. Um, and what alcohol does is it, it depresses the signal transmission in nerves of all types in your body. So it has multiple impacts. For example, in the brain, it can impact your judgment because it's slowing down the nerves in your brain that pertain to exercising judgment. It impacts your vision and it has known or predictable impacts depending on the amount of alcohol on uh, on how you perceive things, on things like your range of vision, your um, ability to see at the periphery, etc., to focus on objects. Ultimately, it affects your coordination, so your hand-eye coordination, your ability to manipulate the controls of the vehicle, and it also, and this is perhaps one of the most important impacts, it impairs your ability, what we call divided attention abilities, essentially your ability to multitask. If you think about driving, you're doing a lot of things at the same time. You're watching the road, you're adjusting the steering wheel, you're adjusting the, the gas, or you're putting your foot on the brake or whatever. You're, you have to do many things at the same time, and alcohol, because it just simply slows down the firing of the nerves, slows down your ability to do all of those things. And then it's cumulative. The more alcohol, the more it's slowing everything down. And do you guys also educate the public about drinking and driving? Yes, we do. Um, unfortunately, with uh, the pandemic, we haven't been able to get out as much, but we have done a number of public events from things like community picnics to things at the um, Discovery Museum, any opportunity we, we can, in fact, we like to go out there and talk about the issues related to impaired driving and try and convince people not to get behind the wheel if they've had anything to drink. 
And you guys bring some drunk goggles and trikes along for those events, don't you? Yeah, we have uh, what we affectionately call the beer goggles. Yes. They're, <laughs> um, they're goggles that are designed to somewhat simulate the, the at least the visual impacts of being impaired. And a lot of people are very surprised at mm-hmm. how much their ability to function is impaired by just putting on these goggles. Yeah, yeah. Putting one of those on and trying to ride a trike is... I have done it. I was not very good at it. (laughs) Not great. Um, What do you believe is the biggest misconception about drunk driving, considering most people don't even know that your section exists? Well, I think the biggest misconception is that there's somehow something magic about that .08 number, that you can drink what you want and as long as you're below the so-called legal limit that you're fine to drive. Whereas really, it, um, it's not like that at all. Alcohol begins to impair your ability to drive at the first drink. You're, simply, you are not as good a driver with one drink in you as you are when you're completely sober. So the, it's a progressive thing. The more you drink, the less good of a driver you are. At some point, you cross over and you're violating the law. You are either unable to safely operate a vehicle or you cross that 0.08 threshold but you're a danger to yourself and others probably before you get to that point and if you have any kind of underlying impairment like maybe you're tired maybe you have some kind of medical or muscular issue maybe you're on some kind of medication you can become severely impaired and unsafe to drive at much lower alcohol levels. So there's really nothing magic about the 0.08, and it can vary. The degree to which you're impaired can vary from day to day. Mm -hmm. So the safest thing is to just not drink and drive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You've touched on it a little bit already in explaining that you guys are a slightly different section in that you don't deal with evidence directly. Um, so given that, what does an average day or week or maybe like even a month look like for you? Well, we have two major responsibilities. The one, as I think I mentioned, is that we're responsible for calibrating and maintaining the evidentiary devices across the state of Nevada. So the, these devices are located in local police stations, sheriff's offices, et cetera. And the, the, the statute, the state statute, requires them to be calibrated every 90 days. So we go out and we go to all the various rural agencies and uh, visit all of these instruments at least once every 90 days to ensure that they're properly calibrated and maintained. We're also responsible for training all of the law enforcement officers throughout the state of Nevada. Now, I should actually clarify, by we, I mean all of the forensic analysts of alcohol in the state. So there's three of us here at the Washoe County Crime Lab, and we have uh, colleagues as well at the Las Vegas Metro Mm -hmm. Crime Lab, which covers the southern part of the state. But we, we, uh, we train officers, and we're required to recertify them every year, so we do a lot of teaching both in law enforcement academies for new law enforcement officers as well as in uh, refresher or recertification courses for existing officers. We do them here locally and we do them out in the regions for the, the smaller agencies. 
and you kind of like just brushed over that rural part of your answer like when we say real you guys are going all the way out to like west windover like you guys go all over northern nevada right yeah, we we are respond. The Washoe County Sheriff's Office is responsible for I believe the current number is twenty nine intoxilizers that essentially go from state line on the California border to West Wendover on the Utah border wow. and all kinds of places in between. I think I calculated that w- we cover a territory of something like sixty five thousand square miles. Wow, so a lot of travel. Sounds like Nevada's not a small state. Yeah. (laughs) Get some good road times. So in all your travels across the state, have you come across any hidden gem of food spots? Well, I happen to like Mediterranean-style food, you know, things like hummus and grape leaves and falafel and things like that. And there's a little place in Elko that does that that I always make a point of trying to visit whenever I can. Awesome. And uh, with all this time on the road, how do you like entertain yourself driving to and from these places? Well, you got to remember that in a lot of the areas that we cover, there's not very good cell phone reception and very often not much in the way of radio reception either. So, um, you know, occasionally listen to things that are downloaded on my phone, but Mostly, I'm trying to make sure I'm staying on the road and particularly not hitting any wildlife out there. <laughs> no, uh, there's their antelopes. There's a lot of wildlife out there. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, it, the plus side is that I get to see a lot of that wildlife. I mean, I've encountered um, elk and antelope, bighorn, uh, even a couple of burros, in, wow. you know, in addition to the run-of-the-mill deer and horses mm-hmm. around here. Yeah. And does this translate to a lot of court for your section? Yeah, we have, we get a lot of subpoenas for court. Like our colleagues in toxicology, we, uh, we get subpoenaed an awful lot. Prior to the pandemic, between myself and, and my two colleagues, we were averaging about 600 subpoenas a year. Now, we Total don't... Total or each? Uh total across the three of us still holy moly so now fortunately we don't have to go to court (laughs) (laughs) that many times most of those cases get resolved without needing us but even at a relatively low percentage of actually having to appear in court we testify in court a lot Mm -hmm. okay well you have made it to what we call the lightning round portion of your interview david Um, These are three questions that we ask all of our interviewees. Um, And so to kick this one off, our first question for you is, do you take your work home with you at all? I will occasionally check emails if I think there's something going on, but I try and leave work at work. Mm -hmm. What has this job, if anything, changed outside of work for you? I think that I've gotten a greater appreciation for the first off all the the complexities and nuances of of impaired driving and certainly i i don't even entertain driving if i've had anything to drink at all Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just i mean even one drink i'm not comfortable driving Mm -hmm. anymore Um, and it's not because of legal consequences it's because i know the that 
it is taking the edge off my ability to drive. The other thing I think is I've gotten an appreciation for our legal system, as complicated and as frustrating as it can be at times. Because I, I'm in court so much, I get to see how it works. And, mm-hmm. and so I have, I think, a greater appreciation for that whole side of things. Yeah. And our last and final question for you is, what makes you smile every day at work? Every day? I don't know about that. <laughs> I think most days. Most days. I think I think my colleagues, the 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 people at the crime lab, are by and large a very um, wonderful bunch of people, and it it's usually easy to find something uh, to smile about with somebody in the lab, no matter what's going on. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming to chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. And so as you've heard a couple of times this episode, our breath testing was shut down for the state of Nevada during COVID-19. So all of those tests that would have been done in our breath alcohol section, people now had to have their blood drawn and all of that testing was now done in our toxicology section. So that was a pretty big hurdle that our lab had to overcome during COVID. Yeah, and, you know, we had limited manpower during COVID-19. Some people were allowed to work from home. We had some alternative work schedules going on. And so our toxicology section really stepped up and took all of these increased numbers of samples that they aren't used to doing and have been able to keep up with that and are doing a fantastic job. So big shout out to our talk section. We hope you guys really enjoyed our show today, and all joking aside, we do really want to hit on the fact that if you're going to be drinking, you should be doing it responsibly. Yeah, and with all the ride-sharing apps out there, it's never been easier to get a sober ride home. Yeah, so please be safe, have fun, but please drink responsibly. Bye, guys. Wash OS1. Yes, one, go ahead. I'm Sheriff Darren Balaam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Washoe County Sheriff's Office Copy with a Criminalist. This podcast is one more way our office is striving to build trust and partnerships within the community that we serve. To learn more about our office, please visit us on the web at washoesheriff.com. If you'd like to further support this project, click subscribe and be sure to tune in for our next episode to learn even more about forensics. Until next time, folks. Washoe, this is S1. I'll be 1042. Have a good night. Yes, one. Copy. Have a good night.